0: let's do this the cult of hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful i'm david staples of the edmonton journal and i'm here today with bruce mccurdy welcome bruce hey david
1: how are you doing today
0: good good i've got some yard work ahead of me so i'm staining the deck and uh I'm not a huge lover of yard work, Bruce. That's, that may be a surprising fact about me, but uh, there you go. Got to do it though, every now and then. Every five years you got to stay in the deck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: my, my kid is doing our deck, although well, I think today is going to be out, judging by that blowing wind and cooler conditions, but uh, he's yeah. making progress.
0: So the world reopened a little bit, Bruce, and though you mm-hmm. may not be able to tell by appearances, I did get my hair cut today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, very nice. <laughs> by, by my count, you're still on bad hair day number zero. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did give my head a shave halfway through this <laughs> thing. Uh, it could start to look pretty unruly, even when you have few hairs on your head uh yeah it's nice that things are opening up hopefully uh, good luck to everyone hopefully everything goes well you're looking good bruce here is 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 the word who her suit
1: her Her suit suit. as ever
0: the burt Reynolds of the cult of hockey bruce mccurdy ladies and gentlemen i
1: had a i had a haircut and a clean shaven look the week of the that everything came apart because i gave a talk to the astronomy club that that monday so i was all spruced up for that and since then I'm just letting it go to seed. We'll see what happens. If I can't grow a beard at my advanced age, I'm never going to be able to grow one. I think it's starting to kind of spotty for color, but there's no wide open gaps like there used to be in my younger years. Under
0: I think it's I think it looks good actually. Kind of suits you, Bruce. Alrighty. So today we are talking about the NHL draft. We're talking about whether or not the owners will should uh re Mike Smith. And um that'll probably be about it. Maybe we could talk about a little bit about Glenn Gullitson's interview with Bob Stoffer. Did you hear that? I did not. He talked about um the power play. Mm-hmm. They went into depth on the power play. You should listen okay. to
1: that uh, I w- I
0: podcast from Monday, Bob Stoffer's interview with Gulletson and he kind of went over the Gulletson's success on the power play. So let's talk about that a little bit too. Sure. Because I did that huge series on it and
1: um all right, and then let's, you, you talked to the uh uh assistant coach on the penalty kill, so this would be kind of a complimentary interview to the one that you did.
0: It it was. And I'm glad Bob did, it was very interesting. So let's start with Mike Smith. Bruce? Yes or no? Should they re sign <laughs> Mike Smith?
1: Well, I went way out on a limb in my in my post and discussed whether or not I thought the Oilers would re-sign Mike Smith as opposed to whether I thought they should re-sign Mike Smith because in my mind what Ken Holland and Dave Tippett think is probably a little more germane to what actually happens than to what I think. And I think their marginal odds are that they will re-sign him for for reasons given. I, I put it at 60-40. I put guesses on all the unrestricted free agents as to which ones they'd bring back and the only ones I had over 50% were were Smith along with uh, Riley Shane also 60-40 and Tyler Ennis at 80-20 and uh, overriding all of the free agent stuff is the fact that all the uncertainty all the delays all the uh, all the uh, uncertainty of of what the market's going to be, when it's going to be, how long it's going to last, that teams will be more inclined to go with internal solutions for one year. And I think they already did that with, uh, well, at the time he was an external solution, Mike Smith, but they wisely went with just a one-year contract. They didn't go with one of these big long-term deals that uh, if you want to get a top-notch goalie, typically you have to do. And... I think Smith largely performed for what he was brought in to do, which was be, you know, a a a one and one B, who could support uh, uh, Mikko Koskinen, who had NHL experience, which Koskinen had 59 games, and nobody else in the organization had any, as of last July 1st before they signed Mike Smith, and so they brought him in to be a be a one B, and and he uh, uh, he came in and largely, I mean. He split the duties with Koskinen. Uh, there's sort of a, a, a array of statistical evidence that Koskinen was the better stopper, uh, but there's another bunch of statistics that suggest that the Edmonton Oilers played better hockey when Mike Smith was in net. And you can put into that what you will, and maybe he was just lucky. He played the right games. You know, maybe there was something about his uh, his. Uh, uh, aggressive puck moving and his aggressive attitude in general that, uh, that sparked the team. I mean, who the hell knows? Some of this stuff is very much hand-wavy uh, in terms of, of uh, full analysis. But I think a case can be made that the, the team liked the player and responded to him, and that uh, uh, the coach, who's now had him on three different teams, uh, certainly trusted him, and he kept going back to him even during the horrendous slump that he had. And uh, the GM obviously trusted him enough to bring him in in the first place and appears to like him. And uh, also, to me, of importance is he and Koskinen had a very good professional relationship between the two of them, which if you're going to go with the two-goalie system, that's paramount. And so there, there was aspects to it that worked out. And it certainly was a better arrangement for Edmonton and Nett than they had in either of the Previous two seasons, and in in, uh, in my view, so I would not be surprised if they go back and say, "Okay, one more year, maybe the similar uh, contract terms." Uh, one of the things they did, of course, was they didn't spend a fortune on the guy, and they, they didn't have a fortune to spend, and they still don't. So their their options are limited. You know, they they're probably not going to be able to go out and sign Robin Leonard, you know, uh, on the open market. So.
0: Yeah, Bruce, I, one thing about that you brought up the uncertainty how can you mm-hmm. even move how could anyone move like set up a house in another city right now just think of the the hardship of doing that like like changing countries uh that's probably going to be possible but you know and things could change but just just the you know, the whole thing about you know The freedom of movement is so limited right now, and um, that's likely to change. But how quickly is that going to change? And in terms of, like, actually picking up and moving to another city, that's a pretty daunting thought, I think, for most people right now. And I don't expect that that would happen. You know, the other uncertainty, of course, is the playoffs. So you're setting the odds, Bruce, um, without the playoffs happening. And I, I would actually put the odds of the Oilers... Just right now, at this moment, before the playoffs, because we don't know, and that's going to change everything, I'd say the odds are more like, ah, maybe as high as 80-20 they would bring Smith back. Because the because the because he did, you know, it just seemed that Tippett favoured him um, a little bit over Koskinen. Played both goalies about the same, but Mike Smith seemed to be the, the, goal, the coach's first choice, I'm guessing, um, based on... Just various situations that came up this year where Smith seemed to get a little bit more leeway. I mean, let's face it, he had a horrendous slump. This is what I'm getting at. He had a horrendous slump. Absolutely horrendous. Would have driven many goalies right out of the NHL. It was it was almost two months long where he was at, a, like, well, I don't know, what was it, 870, 880? Like, it was just a terrible save percentage. But the coach stuck with him. To me, that indicates there's a lot of faith in this player still. As you say, I think it's because of Smith's puck moving, probably, that the team, um, even though his goalie numbers weren't as good as Koskinen's, the team's winning and other numbers were were better or were as good with Smith and that. And I think his puck moving had a big advantage, had a big had a big impact on that. So, and I and I, I we brought this up. We were talking about this before the podcast. I remember the Oilers in '91 looked like they were going to win another cup, a second cup in a row. They had gotten through a couple tough series. And they were facing the Minnesota North Stars. And I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. The Oilers are going to be in the Cup Final again. It's just the Minnesota North Stars. But that Oilers team, um, Messier was still on it. And um, they couldn't get past Minnesota because John Casey was in net for the Stars. And the Oilers, he was such a strong puck mover at that point in his career that he would constantly break down the Oilers' forecheck with very effective uh, passing of the puck. And the Oilers never could mount sustained offensive zone pressure because of it. And Mike Smith does a lot of that. I really think his puck moving is pretty... uh, I don't know if there's a better puck moving goalie in the NHL. And there was two, remember, there was two early gaffes in the year where he made, in the same game, two horrible blunders. Did he make another that ended up in the net, Bruce? Oh.
1: Well, I think those were the two worst ones. They were both in the first ten minutes of the same game against LA Kings, game number two. And is your sound? Are you,
0: is your mic plugged in? Because it suddenly you suddenly got a lot quieter there.
1: The Oilers? How's that? Yeah, better?
0: that's better. Okay. Yeah,
1: the Oilers did. Um, uh, the Oilers did um, fight back and win that game. And Smith himself made a huge game saving stop in the dying seconds, which was. Uh, um, uh, an important game, an important game for him, and and that disaster happened, and they still had a happy ending to it. So uh, he had. Uh, uh, other than that, not too many disasters. Uh, one thing that ha- one thing in the stats that really surprised me, by how extreme it was. Uh, uh, Smith and Koskinen split the ice time almost Mm 50-50. Smith passed to Koskinen in the last game they played. It's like 40 minutes difference over 71 games. And in those games, Koskinen faced an average of 33.3 shots per game. Smith faced an average of 30.2 shots per game. So a difference basically of 10% in shots of games. So even though Smith's... Uh, save percentage was substantially worse than Koskinen's 902 to 917. Their goals against averages weren't that different, and meanwhile, in those same games that uh, they played, this uh, uh, the same amount. Uh, the other team scored nine more goals against Smith than uh, uh, they did against Koskinen, but the Oilers scored 15 more goals. Like they were more effective as an offensive team. I don't remember what the shots were, but I do know what the goals were. Better. And I know you can trace a couple of those goals to aggressive, uh, long you know, stretch passes from Smith during line changes where you can say, okay, their goalie directly contributed to a goal. But In truth, that's very rare that you can say, well, the goalie is, you know, how many, how many, how many of our scoring chances do we credit the goalie? Not very often, right? But you could just say that, you know, the games were a little more wide open and, and more things were happening Uh, when Smith was playing, and those weren't all bad things that were happening. So, it's, uh, you know, the stats are, uh, if you just focus on save percentage, you can say, nope, he's not good enough, get him out of here. But I don't, there's no be-all and end-all single stat, even for a specialized position like Yeah,
0: It's interesting, Bruce, like we, I didn't even know their goals against averages, and it shows how out of fashion that Mm -hmm. stat is with, people like me who look at stats and, you know, there's, you know, we all just look at safe percentage. Now that's really interesting that their goals against average is so, so, uh, so close, but the shots thing really is interesting. And yeah, listen, we intuitively th- know that he's a better puck mover than Koskinen, right? You just watch mm-hmm. the game and now we have some statistical evidence that backs that up. I think we can just say, Hey, there's a pretty good chance here that he was a damn good puck mover and that helped the owners win a little bit more uh than might otherwise based on, kind of iffy goaltending now and then from him. It was a strength that made up for a bit of a, you know, a bit of a weakness compared to the other goalie actually in net. So good for Mike Smith. And Bruce, I love the, I love, uh, I love me some puck moving goaltending. Like we grew up with Grant Fuhr uh, yep.
1: in net. I grew up and with Don Smokey McLeod.
0: <laughs> me too. And listen, Grant, one of the huge advances, like there was a, a time in Edmonton when the Fuhr, Andy Moog, debate raged in this city yeah, absolutely sure it it was a hot topic and there was some on team fear and there was other on team Moog and um I was on team fear for a couple of reasons he was just he was that much more solid I thought as a goalie in particular in 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 pressure games there there and people will some people will scoff at this but there was no better goalie in the 1980s in a pressure game than Grant Fuhr and uh he just was he, he, there was there was moments as an Oilers fan where you knew you're watching that game, you knew they are not scoring again on Grant Fuhr. They're not scoring again on Grant Fuhr, and they didn't. But another thing with Fear was that puck moving. He was so good, so adept, and he was more cautious than Smith. He didn't, he wasn't quite the rover that Smith is, but he was so calm and so adept at moving that puck. And he, what was his assist that one year, Bruce?
1: 14 assists. I believe it's still assists. the NHL record and, uh, Course 83
0: 84. So sometimes the save raw save percentages don't capture everything shockingly about the worth of a goalie. How about that for a thought? So, yes or no, will they sign? Should they sign Mike Smith?
1: Just one more more point on the the, uh, Smith slump. Okay, and I posted a graph showing his save percentage on a rolling five game average and showed him basically jumping off a cliff around game number 10 and rebounding around game number 20. And I, I described the curve as the shape of a, a profile of a bungee jump. And, and you look at that in the goalie and you go, oh, my goodness. But then I posted two similar style of charts uh, of uh, very, very important skaters for the Oilers. Oscar Kleffbaum, their top defenseman. Leon And their top forward or top scoring forward in this season. And both of them, the, the, I looked at goal differential, five on five goal differential to cut out all the empty net and shorthanded nonsense that can pollute that statistic. And I just looked at, at five on five, and the the profiles look the same. All of the, the guy, those those key players absolutely fell off a cliff sometime in the in the uh, uh, early to mid November, and they didn't recover until the beginning of January. And can you say well? Uh, the Oilers went in the tank in December because Mike Smith was awful, or can you say because uh, Leon Dreisaitl was awful, or because Oscar Kleffbaum was awful, or maybe they were all awful at the same time and the team couldn't survive. I mean, the thing about uh, Dreisaitl and Kleffbaum, they they were playing every game, not every other game, and they were still doing that. So it wasn't all because Mike Smith couldn't make a save when every time they made a mistake. It did seem like that, I have to say, but... But there, there was, it was more than just Mike Smith that struggled in, in the first part of, of, uh, of December. Well, that, and of, that the, was
0: an that excellent thing month. to do. That was excellent, Bruce, to, to mm, think of that. You. And uh, I thought, but you know what? We dig into the, we can, I think we can answer the question that you just raised. Was it the mm-hmm. goaltending or was it the players or both? We I'm track sure. we yeah. track mistakes on grade A scoring chances against. And I know for sure with Dreisaitl. He just mm-hmm. started to leak chances against it at this absolutely alarming rate. Mm-hmm. So this has nothing to do with whether the goalie's making a save or not. This is right. his individual to p- play in the defensive end. And is he, making the, is he stopping those guys from getting great ch- chances or not? And his game and McDavid's game fell apart. I believe Clefbaum's game, I know he was up and down this year as well, because players have defensive slumps. So yeah, you had all of these key players who, who, who for whatever reason, were all slumping at the same time, probably because their schedule was so hectic. Maybe they were all a little bit sick, banged up, hectic schedule, all these things combined. And, uh, I mean, that top line needed to be broken up. They just were totally out of sync defensively. Hey, that was an interesting thing. Um, This is an aside. Ken Holland, and I'm going to ask you whether they need to sign Mike Smith or not here. Yeah, I know you are. All right. Ken Holland was interviewed recently, and he um, made an interesting point. One of the things that impressed him, he said, was in that first interview, uh, the Dave Tippett gate when he was hired as an Oilers coach, he mentioned the fact that he might be breaking up Dreisaitl and McDavid, even though they had been a successful right. line. Now for fans like me, that was, well, I thought, of course he's going to break them up. But mm-hmm. for Holland, who hasn't been around the Oilers situation very much, he was actually quite impressed that Tippett said that, that he had kind of the jam to say that, that he's going to break up these top two players who are doing so well together. Um, because, you know, that, that to him was the mark of a veteran coach, and he said it in that first right. uh, interview. And when, of course, you know, many of us have argued over the years, and mm-hmm. you should break them up. There's Fans are probably split right down the middle, would you say, over on that issue, or have been. But uh, anyway, Tippett finally did break them up, and it worked out.
1: Yeah, well, I, I envision that interview as, as Holland immediately responding, but do you think Leon can drive his own line? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, on January, beginning of January, that was the key move that um, that Tippett made was splitting him up. And the key move that Holland made was bringing up Yamamoto and and, and uh, Tippett find the line. And, and around the same time, by hooker by crooker, by ma- waving a magic wand, Mike Smith went from absolutely brutal, the worst goalie in the league, to suddenly more than acceptably good for a long stretch of time, he he went. Uh, uh, he had a extended uh, uh, <clears throat> at least nine game point streak where the Oilers won seven games and took the other two to overtime. And during that time, the whole team recovered from falling out of a playoff position to to solidly getting back in one where they've remained. So. Uh, that was, uh, the, you know, the key turning points of the season were October and January. And in both of those months, Mike Smith was excellent.
0: He really was. And is.
1: when they slid, he was not excellent. So I, I guess you can focus on the fact that he's erratic and consistent. Um, but bottom line, for what they paid for the guy, <clears throat> which at this point is $2 500000 in bonuses with some pending for, for a one-year deal, uh, I think they at least got what they paid for, and I think they probably will, uh, you know, I'd say more likely than not, unless there's a trade out there. I really don't want to see the open market things. I don't think there's a solution there, but, you know, maybe there's a team that's looking to get rid of a known commodity that they can afford, and they can work something else out. But I, I think Smith is the favorite to come back for one year. The Oilers have now four developing goalies, they got two in the last year of their entry-level contracts. They have Conneval off in his last year in the KHL potentially. And next summer well, they'll be in a different position than they are this summer. And by summer I mean off-season, whatever month it actually happens. in. So my expectation, frankly, is they will sign Mike Smith and go with the same tandem that has had success for him uh, this season.
0: Developing goalies is kind of a kind way to put it, given the season that that uh, three out of the four of those goalies had, including Konovalov, <laughs> They all took a step back, as far as I can see. Uh, mm-hmm. Not one of them gave any confidence at all that they're going to be an NHL goalie of those three. Uh, Wells, Skinner, and Konovalov. And then there's Rodrigue, who took a step up. So we'll see.
1: Why, next playoffs, Rodrigue could be Andy Moog in 1981, for all we know, right? But uh,
0: Well, that's it.
1: He is promising, but he's the furthest away in terms of just turning pro. So I'm not sure there's any answers there, but I'm not sure that they necessarily want to go long-term with a different goalie either. It's it's it's, uh, it's a short-term decision I think Holland will be making, and uh, well, the default um, is just to go back to the guy that uh, they had this year.
0: Jonathan Willis had a good post yesterday uh, at The Athletic where he talked about how goalies in their 30s, just like mm-hmm. all other NHL players, really tend to slide and slide off a cliff. And, the, the, you know, you, the best thing to do if you're looking for value in net is to sign one of these AHL veterans who has been there for four or five, six years in the AHL, been doing really well and probably should have been in the NHL some time ago, save for the conservative nature of NHL coaches and GMs who like to go with the proven quantity in net. Bob Stoffer suggested yesterday that uh, the order should bring in one of these guys on a $700,000 a year contract, a, NHL contract, and that could be the solution. Now I, I I agree, like I don't, but I don't want to I can't spend Daryl Cates' money. Like I don't like if you, if you have unlimited money, if money's not a concern, yeah, sign a third guy, who you can mm-hmm. send to the minors um, if needs be. And now they had a player like that in Shane Sterrett, who looked really close to to maybe making it, and and his body fell apart last year. <clears throat> he could never get healthy. So I don't know if Shane Sterrett's coming back or not. I doubt it, but. There are probably three or four HL goalies um, who you could sign as a free agent this year who or trade for for limited pieces, and you mm-hmm. could have that that veteran goalie. And if you're willing, if Cates is able to spend his money, like I'm all for D- Daryl Cates spending his money to make me happy, mm-hmm. um, yeah, do that. Bring in that, that goalie. But Bruce, would you, okay, here's my question for you, not what the owners are going to do. If Smith... Was offered a similar contract to this year, one year deal, similar money. Would you offer, would you, would you okay that? Would you okay making that offer to Mike Smith?
1: If my GM was recommending it to me, absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what? It's a very hard question to answer.
1: I know it is. I know it because, is. Because, and,
0: and that's why I'm putting you on the I'm, I'm all
1: in favor of getting the number three this year. I mean, the owners are very lucky that, uh, uh, that Koskinen and Smith were able to play every game. You know, they had one game where they brought up Skinner to stand on the bench, you know, and wear a ball hat. And if one of those veterans were to get hurt for a few weeks, uh, that really would have changed the equation because, well, I mean, as it turned they out, a big three, injury okay. they did get was, was to their number three in yeah. Starrett. But he was a very unproven guy. I frankly like the days back when they had Martin Gerber or Yan Denis down there or some, you know, an actual Richard Bachman even, you know, like a proven professional goaltender that uh, was waiting in the wings for that time, you know, during the season that you lost a goalie for a couple of weeks. So I, I, I wouldn't mind so. to see him get a guy like that.
0: I liked the bet they made on Starrett, like being that mm-hmm. guy. I mean, he had had a, he would probably been their most valuable player the year before.
1: Mm-hmm. He was good. And,
0: and, um, you know, save for injury. He, he, he might have gotten some games at Edmonton this year and we'd all be talking about, you know, the owners are well served in net and mm-hmm. poor Shane Starrett. Like, I don't know what, what the future holds for him now, but I, I, I don't know if they'll bring him back and take another risk on him because, um, there's probably other guys out there who weren't injured and, And that's hockey. Okay, uh, Bruce, let's talk NHL draft. Let's start out with uh, the post that I recently did where I have identified what I call the Big 13. And these are 13 players in this forwards, attacking forwards, who have the offensive talent that would indicate to me that in any other year, most of these 13 Players, if they were available in any other year, recent draft, they would go in the top ten, almost all of them, if not all of them. And uh, so I'm basing this on on a couple things. First of all, there's nine players in this year's draft who are coming out of the CHL who have average who average more than 1.4 points per game, and and that's a that's a pretty outstanding uh, point total for um, anyone in the CHL. I'll just go for for previous years, and I'll uh, since uh, the uh, turn of the century, and I'll here's the players who have averaged 1.4 uh, points per game. Steve Bernier, who never made it. Bobby Ryan, Max Domi, Josh Bailey, Nikolai Goldobin, Nazem Kadri 1.41, Zach Phillips 1.42, Evander Kane 1.42, Philip Zina, 1.42. 1.42, Claude Giroux, 1.43, Alish Hemsky, 1.44. This is all in draft years. Nick mm-hmm. Suzuki, 1.45, Michael Cole 1.46, Logan Couture, 1.46, Jeff Skinner, 1.46, Nico Hischier, 1.48, Timo Meyer, 1.48. So you get a sense that not all of these players uh, will make it as NHLers. But, but a lot of them make it, and a lot of them are very, very good players. And almost all those guys uh, were taken in the top 10 in their in their draft years. Right. A few of them were, were not. Phillips and Goldobin were taken. They were all taken in the first round, those guys. So this year, there's nine of those players in the draft. Last year, Bruce, there wasn't one from the wow. CHL who, who had that 1.4 points per game. So usually there's about um, three or four. From the mm-hmm. CHL, this year again, there's nine. But there that's not the only good players from a draft year, of course. There's all the players coming from American leagues, um, USHL. Uh, there's the, the lower Canadian leagues that aren't included in that. And there's, of course, the European leagues. So what I did was to figure out, to try to historically place this draft. How good is this draft for offensive talent going into the draft? Mm-hmm. I looked, on average, the players who average one4 points per game in the CHL are drafted eighth overall in the NHL in the last 20 years. So I kind of took that as a marker. I'll take anyone in the top 10 who's from these other leagues and include them then on the list. And so this is just kind of a back of the envelope thing. It's not right. as precise as maybe it could be, but I just want to get a, want it, wanted to get a general sense of, um, of, of this. So if you go by that, that's how you get to 13 players from this draft. Cause you add in players like, who are expected to go in the top 10, and that includes, so that's Anton Landell, Tim Stutzi. I don't know how you pronounce his Mm -hmm. name, the German who's expected to go in the top five, Alexander Holtz, and... um,
1: Lucas Raymond.
0: Lucas Raymond. So there's four more guys you add to your list, you get to 13. So absolutely packed with talent, Bruce. Usually there's about... So usually there's about five or six player forwards who meet this qualification, Mm-hmm. In a draft year, uh, five or six. Sometimes you get up to seven or eight. Sometimes you're down to three or four. This year, there's right. 13 of them. Oh. So one of them is almost certain to fall to the Oilers. It's, it's, and we're we are so lucky that in a year when we're going to probably be drafting 20th, a, a huge need on this team for an attacking forward is going to be met uh, in this year's draft. Your thoughts?
1: Oh yeah. First of all, just a general question to which I don't know the answer. Was there any kind of surge in goal scoring at the junior level this year that got, you know was a rising tide that floated some of these boats, or was it just another year? I didn't notice sort of uh, any number of nine, eight games or anything like that. But I you know don't know if you looked at the league average goal scoring to see if there'd been something you know there were. Last year's 1.3 is this year's 1.4, you know, but otherwise, um, uh, I mean, they've talked about the top top of this draft class being very good for a long time. And I mean, I know we saw three guys at the Alinka-Gretzky Cup here uh, in August uh, two years ago, uh, who are now all touted as top five, certainly top 10 candidates. And you could see at the time, 16-year-old kids, Alexis Lafreniere. Alexander Holtz, Lucas Raymond—they were all tremendous prospects even then. And they're saying, "Boy, you have got better players for 2020 than we do for 2019." We were saying, watching the, the game. I was watching with uh, Ruel and Supernova, two prospectophiles. On the uh, uh, people might recognize their handles from Twitter, and uh, that the 2020 always looked, you know, looked like to be above average, but uh, 13. Uh, top-notch offensive players is a real treasure trove.
0: To answer your question, Bruce, that's a. I think that's a really that question crossed my mind. It's an important fact check. I couldn't find mm-hmm. anything where someone's done that work, and and I wasn't that quite a tremendous amount of work, so I wasn't <laughs> about to do it for for uh, you know. I was digging into this specific question. My my gut sense is that if you go back, uh, if you go back before the lockout in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. there's a real dearth of forwards who meet. If you go to the early two, 2000s, there's, there's hardly any down forwards down. who meet that that criteria of 1.4 per game. Mm-hmm. So what I'm taking from that is that in in that era, for those, you know, the 2000 to 2004 draft or five draft, that that is a, a factor, that the scoring was lower in the CHL. Now, no one's raised, I haven't, like I was reading a lot about the draft and about this kind of, no one's brought up in recent years. I haven't heard that, that scoring's up in the CHL this year as compared to other years. Um, And listen, there was not one of these players last year, you know. If scoring was up, did it suddenly rise this year, I kind of doubt that. So there was none of these players last year who met this qualification. But Mm -hmm. um, I think in the early... uh, So, like, in in the 2000 draft, there wasn't any players who who made it. 2001, there was just two, Jason Spezza and Alex Hemsky. 2002, there was just two. 2003, there was just two. Um, 2005, there was just two. 2006, there was just two. And then it's 2007 on, it takes off the scoring. So I I do think that that, that in those early years, that might have been the case.
1: I do have the averages in front of me for the NHL over those years, uh, which, of course, is not junior, but, you know, it is the, the... uh, it, it is a litmus test for hockey as a whole, and it was right around 2.6 to 2.7 goals per game from 2000 to 2004, and since then it's gradually risen up to where it's now just over three. So basically, a 10% increase in goals from the beginning of the century to the current day. So obviously, that's going to turn a former 1.3 points per game player into a 1.45 or something today, yeah. and and put, should just produce more players who've crossed that threshold. But not yeah, so there- nine—that's I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Like so, this is—I think we can safely say, like, you're not. Yeah, you're not going to jump from two to to nine if if you have that uh, increase in scoring. You'll have some increase in scoring. Mm-hmm. You know, generally speaking, uh, you know, the weaker in the weaker draft years, you'll have players who average less than a point per game going in the top ten. Now, some of those players. Who, who who average less than a point per game. To me, that would be... You, you, you better be damn sure he's this beast before you draft him. But some of these players who average less than uh, a point a game are these beasts, like Bo Horvat. You know, they turn into these fantastic NHL hockey players. But uh, to me, it's a bit of a, a red... That is one red flag. If the scoring isn't high... You're really, you're, you're really rolling the dice if you think that you're going to get a top six NHL forward out of a player who's averaging less than a point per game in, in major junior. It does happen. and This would be an interesting study probably. Look at all the ones who have averaged less than a point per game in the last 15 years since scoring's mm-hmm. been more even and, and see how many of those players uh, have turned into top six forwards in the NHL. And uh, it happens, but it's pretty rare
1: they mostly be complementary players, would be my guess.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know which one is it's going to be, Bruce, of these mm-hmm. players who fall to the Oilers. Um, but, uh, man, they... And I should... Add, one final qualifier. I didn't look at players taken outside the first round who have averaged right. 1.4 per game. Because I was just trying to look at heading into a draft... What is the expectation for that draft? And I wasn't looking at the historic achievement of players from a draft. Like, if you looked at the historic achievement from players from drafts, like you could say, well, this, the 2003 draft, for instance, just pulling a number out of the air, is actually the best draft because it had like 20 forwards who went on to score, you right. know, a point per game in the NHL. But I wasn't looking at that. I was trying to look at heading into the draft in terms of the expectation based on point scoring in junior hockey. Um, how does the talent level look? And so right now we're in a very, very optimistic moment for Oilers fans. And all we need is for a couple teams to draft defensemen and one goalie. Mm-hmm. And uh we're in the money in terms of getting a player with inc- tremendous top ten draft pick offensive potential at the twentieth spot. So
1: Well I guess yeah, I mean that's certainly the glass half full uh thing. The glass half empty version is that all the other teams ahead of us are gonna be getting good players too, right? So, I mean, it's just a good year, but we, we want to be part of that. What you don't want is the 2003 scenario where you have uh, division rival Anaheim loading up with Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry while the Oilers are trading down and out into Mark Pugliot, where everybody else gets a good player and you don't. Like, that's a disaster. So they, they certainly need to make this pick count.
0: You know, they've done pretty well with their recent picks. Um, yes, you can argue I, the Se RV mm-hmm. pick was a major miss uh mm-hmm. i i'd say the story's still somewhat unwritten on Jesse Poliarvi that it's still mm-hmm. we're not past that five year mark for instance with Poliarvi are we? we're we getting there no
1: no
0: uh, so uh is it it's this year actually is they will be the
1: 2021 will be yeah he was drafted in 2016 so. so
0: this is uh this is you know we'll see what Poliarvi uh does this year for whatever team mm-hmm. he's with but uh but other than that the orders have done pretty well in recent years. I mean, a run of of picks that includes Drysidle, Nurse, Yamamoto um, in the first round. Bouchard looks like he's going to be an oak. You know, story's not told, but he was damn good in the HL last year. So, I'm mm-hmm. hopeful the Oilers have some strong drafters in place. Cer- certainly, Bruce in the 2000 in the, the, the Prendergast era. All due respect, was not marked with drafting brilliance um, for the Edmonton Oilers. Neither were the last 10 years of the Barry Fraser. Last 15 years of the Barry Fraser regime, we're, we're, we're not at all good. So we'll see. Well, this is a new era. Yeah, and
1: I, I'm taking a slightly different angle and looking at uh, what happens around pick number 20. And, and I'm just looking at uh, players picked exactly at number 20 in in recent drafts. And since the flaming bust that was Angelo Esposito in 2007, uh a lot of NHL players get picked. Uh, Michael Delzato, 2008, Jacob Josephson, 2009, marginal, Bo Bennett, 2010, kind of marginal, Connor Murphy's been a defenseman in this league for a long time, Scott Laughlin was, you know, again, not a great player, but a, a, an NHLer. And then from 2013 to 17, it's a pretty impressive list Anthony, uh, uh, Anthony Mantha from uh, Ken Hall's Detroit Red Wings, uh, Nick Schmaltz, who's a very good player for uh, Arizona, uh, Joel Erickson-Eck in uh, Minnesota, uh, Dennis schlowski in Detroit, jury's still out in him, 2017, Robert Thomas, a very good forward, scoring forward for uh, St. Louis Blues, and then since then, of course, the guys are just really just starting to turn into the pro ranks. And over that same period of time, uh, the Oilers, if you go sort of plus or minus two from twenty, because it's not often you get they land exactly on a given number. Yeah. But in, in two thousand seven, uh, the Oilers took. Um, uh, oh, what the heck's his name? Uh,
0: they,
1: uh, the the checking forward they wound up trading out to uh, to Hartford.
0: Oh, uh,
1: Riley uh, Nash. Riley Nash, yeah, and he's played like five hundred NHL games. And, and then in uh, 2008, they picked Jordan. Uh, they took him at 21. They took Jordan Everly at 22, in uh, 2008. That's a home run. They took Oscar Clefbaum at number 19 in 2011. That's a home run. Uh, and in 2017, they again picked at number 22 and took Kyler Yamamoto. And that is that ball has come flying off the bat, and it appears headed for the fences as well. So. Around that spot, the orders have done well. Where they've stunk is picking early in the second round, where they just had just uh, a string of disasters. But when they've had a pick around number 20, they've made a count. So for whatever that means, I mean, we're talking about different GMs, different scouting staffs, ancient history in some cases. But uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's at least encouraging if you look back and see... Well, you know, they got they got actual guys that came, made the team, made the league, became good players in this league. Drafted from right around that position, hopefully they can do it again.
0: Yeah, maybe you should increase your sample size for NHL players. Like go from eighteen to like the eighteen yeah, to
1: yeah. twenty-two. This is very preliminary. To, I'm just, to, uh,
0: yeah, to give you yeah to give like a like an even bigger picture, and you can then f- kind of more accurately figure out the odds of this player turning into a good NHL. You can just look at the forwards, for instance, because we know they're gonna they're gonna take right. the forward.
1: Yeah. So just 100%. look at the forwards
0: taken like for the for that time period from eighteen to twenty two and and then we can start to get a real sense of over time. But again, this draft, all drafts are not like other drafts. You know, some mm-hmm. years to into this world are born, you know, more players that are gonna be great NHLers than other years. It's just how it works. And um 100%. and this this looks like one of those years and uh so I'm just very hopeful, and and of course I have the Eberly and the Yamamoto picks in my firmly in my mind. You know, sure. but irrationally bubbling up into my head like, oh, we're going to get a we're going to get an Eberly or a Yamamoto this year, and that's what I think. So uh, I'm probably wrong, and it, we, we're just as likely to get a Pouliot or a Ninamaki. <laughs> we're likely to get ninamaki in this draft, <laughs> uh, as we are as, But listen. This really is rare to have this amount of abundant offensive talent like this. Just it's just fantastic, and that's not even including some players like uh, you know the Sean Patrick Ryan identified, like Jan Misak right. and um, uh, Tyson Forster. I believe the other guy was you know he's got this blistering slap shot. So yeah, I wish the orders had two two draft picks in the twenties. Uh, this is a year to have. This is a good year, very good year to have a draft pick, extra draft picks. New Jersey has three picks in the top twenty. So I think New Jersey isn't going to spend them all on forwards. I think that's one of the teams. I, I, so one of the things I'm doing, Bruce, is looking at, okay, who's we need like four teams to take a, a defenseman and one team to take a goalie. Again, Askarov is rated in the top 10 by almost everybody. So he's probably going to go. So, yeah. But we need some teams to take some defensemen. And there are some really good defensemen. Count on it. But not, but not that many, but their team need drives a lot of this. And if there's going to be some teams that are going to need a defenseman right now, more than they are forward. So I'm going to, what I think we should do actually do is get together and do a mock draft. We haven't done that before, but it might be fun for us. Like the three of us, we could even do it live or not live, but we could do it on a, on a podcast where the three of us get together. Each of us takes 10 teams, like the, the team, the drafting teams in the first round. Right. And we draft for that team. And, okay. um, and do that. I think that might be a lot of fun and we could write a, a post about that. Alrighty. Uh, what do you, what? Oh yeah. So that's what you're working on. Yep, and yep. Um, let's, let's deal with the final topic of the day, which is uh, Bob Stoffer had an interview with Glenn Gullitson, and Gullitson, and Glenn Gullitson about uh, the Oilers power play. And this was a, a topic that I got into deeply earlier in the year. I did a earlier in this lockout lockdown. We've had the lockout. Now we've got the lockdown. Uh, lockdown's uh, period where I looked at the order's power play and I came to a few conclusions that the key to the order's power play success was a few things. It was freeing up McDavid especially to have free movement, free range on the power play, taking fewer outside shots from the point, you know, not focusing mm-hmm. so much on cleft bomb and having the top players shoot from their key spots. And I'm happy to report that in Gullitson's interview with Bob Stauffer, he identified all of those three things as being, uh, as actually having happened and actually being keys to the Oilers' uh, power play success, Which, which lends to my theory. It's actually fairly easy or not that difficult for the average fan to look at a power play and figure out what's going right and wrong. But for a PK, it's almost impossible because of the the nature of hockey. So Gulletson didn't actually say anything that was that surprising, but he did back up what he said was completely in line with what what I had found in my own posts, uh, I thought. Do you have some cat or dog issues there?
1: I have a a visiting visiting cat. I have a visiting cat. We have cats in our basement. So I don't often, because our cat died, of course, so I don't often get... Is that a big? That looks
0: like a big cat. Whoa!
1: That is a very cat, large.
0: It's, it's almost if that cat was any larger, Bruce, he'd be making a breakfast of you right now.
1: <laughs> can you hear him purring? I can. He's like a nice purr cat. Yes. Yeah, he's a great big purr ball. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, saying, gelatin
0: basically. Gelatin basically. Uh, gelatin basically. <laughs> Confirmed the things i had found in the, in, you know, the tendencies that I had noticed myself.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's, um, uh, we talked, uh, I think we can actually claim credit for this, because I think maybe two years ago, we talked on a podcast about the need to untie, untether, I think was maybe the word I used, McDavid from the half wall. Sort of the the modern traditional uh, NHL power play, you know the 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 template of you put your top guy on the on the half wall and have him feeding the other players, and you have your best playmaker doing that. Well, that Connor McDavid may be your best playmaker, but that's not necessarily his best play. And taking, you know, I mean his 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 feet are his giant weapon, and they really did uh, uh, they 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 did. Remove that tether and say skate, skate, make stuff happen. And of course, having Drysidle as a Plan B to operate that half wall, uh, which he did brilliantly in Prince Albert. And you know, I mean, he's certainly got the got the uh, uh, he's got the chops to do it. And I think even Drysidle moved around the zone a little bit. And I think they just created yeah. so many different looks for the other teams uh, with so many talented players, both giving and receiving. Passes out of those various looks, that you know, they the chances of generating a high quality shot on a power play was pretty high, and the chance of that high quality shot hitting the net was pretty high. And and uh, I, what you found that I found I think most intriguing out of all your posts on the power play was that difference in how the sh- who was making the shots and how it changed from funneling pucks at the net from the point from the uh, Todd McClellan, Jay Woodcroft era to, no, let's move the puck around until we get the shot we want from the guy we want shooting it and take that shot. And the shot number's going down, the goal number's going way up. And that was key. And it sounds like uh, uh, what Gouldson said yesterday uh, corroborated uh, the major points of that.
0: Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of the uh, Jay Woodcroft power play. in. Mm-hmm. Is. In Bakersfield, the last two years, either I don't know. It just it just seems like it. I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. Um, he's at otherwise a very good. He's got many strengths as a coach, Jay Woodcroft. But uh, I've never been a fan of his power play strategy. Uh, Goodletson mentioned Ryan Nugent Hopkins being as good as McDavid and Dreisaitl in the half in, in the offensive end. So just when the pucks on the, in the offensive end on the power play, he put. Nuge in the same categories as those other two guys, which I think is a fair comment. Um, you know, he talked about Nuge's ability to get that shot, even though he's not on his off wing, to get off that great shot and to set up plays. And uh, I think Drysaddle is a better player on the in in the offensive zone, just in the offensive mm-hmm. zone, not overall, just in this limited thing on the power play in the offensive end. Drysaddle is a better player than Connor McDavid in, in that particular aspect of the game. But when you do unleash McDavid, and you know you could call this power play as much as anything, McDavid, Connor McDavid unleashed. Yeah. Um, that's a huge <laughs> thing. And, and you're right, Bruce. We've been we we had been hammering on that because it was just so abundantly apparent that having him on the right half wall was not working. That that uh, he he wasn't getting shots off. He wasn't getting passes through. He was giving away the puck, and it was painful to behold that year. Um, I can't. I think that must oh, have been
1: 2017-18. 18. was just.
0: Painful to watch 30, that power play.
1: Thirty-one power play goals in the entire season.
0: And Milan Lucic in front of the net. Oh god! Like he just—he couldn't. He wasn't retrieving pucks. He wasn't. And then they just wouldn't change up their strategy. They were just—they wouldn't adapt. And mm-hmm. I guess that's when I developed my uh, distrust of Jay Woodcroft's power play tactics. But maybe maybe it's easier to notice problems than to fix them. How about that for a theory that? That yeah. lots, maybe Jay Woodcroft was well aware of the issues, but for various reasons, like it's hard to take Milan Lucic off the power play. I'm sure, right? Like to say, no, you're sitting. You're not gonna. We we paid you six million a year for seven years or whatever the hell it was, and and but no, we're, and a, even after you have had tremendous success recently on the power play, you're just not getting it done, buddy. You're gonna have to sit. So, it just went with that forever. That cat's mauling you, Bruce. He's...
1: Yeah, well, I'm mauling him too. <laughs>
0: All right, let's 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 leave it there. I don't think, uh, I think we're, we've covered the topics.
1: All right. Sounds thanks
0: good. Thanks for talking, Bruce.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone.
0: And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey
1: podcast. Why can't I? There we go.